Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carroll. Though you may not realize that the ongoing threat of terrorism is affecting your life and that of your loved ones. Each week, Dr. Carroll analyzes the hottest topics in terror and helps you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Forgotten Women and Children. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist, and your terrorist therapist. Yes, today we're going to be talking about terrorists, forgotten women and children. We um, are not thinking much these days about uh, ISIS and other terrorists because we have so much else to uh, to think about. But as I keep saying, um, and as is uh, continually true, the terrorists haven't forgotten about us. Um, and they are still still um, recruiting and so on. And um, there is a particular problem that really no one is talking about, a ticking time bomb that is existing in the Middle East, brewing. And that is... Um, the fact that there are w- uh, women, the wives and children of terrorists who are in refugee camps and prisons in Syria, and they are getting older. <laughs> Not so much, doesn't matter so much that the women are getting older, but the children are getting older. And the women, their mothers, a lot of them are, um, you know, they went to the Middle East to join ISIS, to marry ISIS men, and so on. They couldn't resist them over the Internet. Uh, And other women who uh, were there and and married uh, terrorist men, they, a lot of them, are still very much um, believing in the terrorist cause. And so here we have these children who are growing up in these refugee camps and prisons with mothers who are indoctrinating them into... um, radical is becoming radical islamist terrorists and so it is um, a ticking time bomb leading to isis 2.0 now that's what we're going to be talking about in the first segment then we're going to talk about the story of um, one of these teens who is in a syrian prison and who had sent out a a um an audio, audio recordings to his family that then got to the media talking about what it was like in this prison, asking, begging for help. Uh, and he never got it and he just died. So we're going to, you know, first we'll look at the overall issue, the overall problem uh, leading to ISIS 2.0. Then we'll look at the story of a particular example of one of these teens And then we'll look at, go to a different kind of, uh, a different area where there are uh, terrorists, forgotten women and children, and that's Afghanistan, where women and children under the Taliban are being treated like refugees or prisoners. Remember the first press conference where, of the Taliban, where a woman uh, was allowed to ask the first question, of course it was all for show, 
and she asked about how the Taliban was going to treat women in the future, and they gave her, um, you know, good PR. They were they were very they were very good at PR, and they gave her a story about how the women were going to be treated so well and so on. Well, now that Americans have pulled out, uh, the women and children are, are being treated like refugees or prisoners, similar to how they're being treated in the Middle East. Different, in different ways they're being oppressed, but um, it is still, it is still a, a problem. And, and we are not uh, thinking about these terrorist women and children in e any of these places that I just mentioned, either the Middle East or in Afghanistan, and we need to pay attention. So I'm going to tell you today about what is going on, and um, you can decide for yourself what you think needs to be done. Okay, so first, the Middle East, this this ticking time bomb brewing in the Middle East, leading to ISIS 2.0. We are being warned by national security experts that the camps in Syria that house the wives and children of ISIS fighters are a national threat, an international threat, really, a national security threat, you know, of course, to the United States, and, and just in general, a threat to anywhere where terrorists go, radical Islamist terrorists go to take over and uh, and uh, perpetrate attacks and so on. Um, as I was saying, they're now turning into military-aged males, some of the children, who are being indoctrinated by their militant mothers and hardened by the violence that they are undergoing. I mean, you know, the thing is, um, it's really not, it's, it's, it's easy for the mothers to tell them about um you know, to indoctrinate them because they see the horrible conditions that they are being kept under and they are being housed with other violent people and ISIS is attacking the prisons, the, uh, these, these camps and the prisons. And so um, it is easy for them to, to uh, see why, to become radicalized. Um, now there are, uh, there they are, uh, when the children are getting older, um, particularly the males, they are being transferred to the wartime pris prisons for the ISIS fighters because of how violent and radical these teens have become. And so then, um, you know, in the prisons, when, when they're transferred to the prisons, that's an even more dangerous and violent and angry environment. And they get become radicalized even faster. Um, now, these prisons uh, house approximately 10,000 adult males, um, these suspected ISIS fighters, and because their countries that they belong to don't want to repatriate them. And really, you cannot blame them because um, that we have seen, similar to the, the prisoners that we had in Guantanamo, when they were sent back to their countries of origin, the majority of them have perpetrated attacks, terrorist attacks. So it's no wonder that the countries that, um, that these prisoners belong to don't want to take them back. Um, ISIS is, uh, uh, tries to attack the prisons in the area. They have been doing that because they want to set its fi their fighters free. They want more fighters. So they want them out of the prisons. Um, 
Now, let me tell you about some, some more about these prisons um, or, and these refugee camps. Uh, the refugees, the wives and the children of the dead or captured Islamic fighters, are living in white tents in a desert, a, a drought-stricken desert in Syria. Now, a, one of the uh, examples of this, a classic example, is a prison called Al-Hol, and that is, that is the major prison, detention camp, I mean, for people that were displaced by the ISIS war. 93% of the 55,000 people in Al-Hol are women and children. 55,000 and 93% are women and children. Half of them are under 12. Most have Iraqi or Syrian mothers. Thousands come from about 51 other countries. Um, so after, since the uh, ISIS caliphate crumbled, or we crumbled it, thanks to Trump, in 2019, um, the our, we're not paying as much attention to what's going on there, but uh, these children, as I was saying, were, are growing up under these brutal circumstances and are being radicalized. Um, so they are, as I was saying, they've become numb to violence. They're angry at the world, um, and and near this this camp. Um, the camp is near the prison. The detention camp is near the prison. And uh, so these women and children are part of a group of facilities, including the prison. Um, so our State Department, the American State Department, has been urging countries to repatriate their citizens. But needless to say, that is not, not going over well, not very popular. Um, so there, there are people from all over, from um, Iraq, from France, from um, Germany, Belgium, Britain, Turkey, Russia, and um, and the women. You know, they, oh, and things are getting really bad in this Alhol prison. There, for example, there were about 25 murders this year, and the number of murders has increased. Uh, including one recently where a woman was found beheaded. And there are what's called hardcore ISIS women. These women have appointed themselves, so they're still very much ISIS. I mean, you, you can understand why the countries aren't taking them back. They're still, you know, still ISIS believers. Uh, and they have appointed themselves as religious police. And they are, they are in fact, killing some of these people in the camp. Um, as retaliation for behavior like uh, the women talking to the camp authorities. So, you know, um, I mean, the war with ISIS is not over. Now, at this Al-Hol camp, uh, most of the children don't attend school. There aren't enough of them to take to teach. There were two schools that were recently forced to close because they had stopped hiring camp residents as support staff, so they were repeatedly attacked. I mean, ISIS keeps attacking the prisons and the camps and um, want to get people out, you know, to, to 
actually be there to be able to help ISIS. Um, they teach, you know, when there when there are schools, you know, periodically, intermittently, when they can manage to gather something together in a slipshod kind of way. They teach English, Arabic, math, and science. But the gra the violence that is increasing is traumatizing the children, and of course, it's very difficult for them to learn. And the really sad part is, and this, uh, this is going to be exemplified by the story that I'm going to tell you in the next segment, these children, just like the Australian boy who I'm just going to tell you about, these children didn't choose to go to Syria or to be born there for that matter, you know, where their mother married because their mother married an, an ISIS terrorist, and they are trapped here. And... Um, they themselves are already becoming violent. For example, a bunch of them threw stones at reporters. Um, and the more, uh, the older they get to be, the more, you know, they're not going to just be throwing stones anymore. They're going to be actually acting out in more violent ways. So we, this is something that um, needs to be needs to be dealt with, or we are basically growing <laughs> radical Islamist terrorists um, in these camps and in these prisons. So stay tuned. Now I'm going to tell you about an Australian teenager um, who is uh, who was just killed. Who who set out this? Who set out these incredibly um, tragic and sad and these pleading audios? to ask people to help him. That was in January, this past January, and now he was just killed in July. Nobody came to rescue him. I mean, it was, he was kind of in an impossible situation. Okay, so stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Terrorist Therapist Show, where we're talking today about terrorists Forgotten Women and Children. Well, as promised, I am now going to tell you the story of a little boy. Well, he started out as a little boy. He started out at 11 when his family brought him to the Middle East uh, to join ISIS. Um, his name is Yusuf Zahab. And um, he, I'll start with the news about him in January, January 2022. Um, the news about him was at that point, he was still alive, um, he just died. Um, the news about him was that there was a 17-year-old um, Australian teen, Australian boy, inside a Syrian prison. And um, this prison was had been attacked by ISIS um, in on January 20th, and they because they were trying to free some of the thousands of ISIS members who were inside this prison to get them to be active ISIS fighters. And um, this so this this boy who we now know you know is named Yosef. Um, I mean, they knew it then, but they weren't reporting his name at first. Anyhow, he, um, in January, when when ISIS attacked, he reportedly suffered a head wound um, from the gunfire and or the explosions 
that were around him. And so he sent out an audio recording on a phone, which I find, you know, there are different reports of, of whether it was a call or whether it was an app or whatever. I'm not really sure how this Australian had a um, had a phone that that could reach. Oh, he sent it out to his, his family in Australia, which is pretty astonishing in itself. But, um, you know, this this is what they are still saying now. It wasn't just what was reported in, in January. So I guess somehow or other, <laughs> he had this phone and uh, and he managed to try to, um, <laughs> I wonder if that was T-Mobile or Verizon or what. Uh, it's not funny. <laughs> you know, I always do gallows humor, but I, I just, it's hard just, it's just hard to understand how that was, but it was. And so in his audio recording, he said, I'm Australian. I'm scared I might die any time. Now, he was in this prison for three years um, inside the, a prison in a Syrian town. And um, he, and, and so ISIS came, uh, you know, broke into the prison. There were, this particular prison, there were roughly 5,000 men and 700 boys. Uh, that who were detained, and they broke into the prison by detonating a car bomb and killing dozens of staff in the prison, which allowed inmates to flee. So, you know, they're running around now <laughs> in Syria, and they have become ISIS, become again, returned to being um, ISIS recruits. So again, folks, you know, I know we have a lot on our mind uh, keeping safe from COVID, the economy, um, the southern border, where, of course, as I've talked about several times, there are terrorists coming across the northern and southern border. I talked about that in a recent podcast. Um, and we have COVID and we have monkeypox, and now there's a new uh, disease that is coming across, the Crimean, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. I just tweeted about that. You will you will be hearing about that. So yes, we have lots of things, uh, and and you know um, formula that there wasn't enough of in America, and all kinds of problems. Um, so I know it's hard maybe to think about or to worry about uh, the women and children who are stuck in the Middle East prisons and camps. I get that. But the, what I just want you to understand is that it's not just – it is going to be a problem for us, for us. By that, I mean the West, um, because, you know, for example, these terrorists, uh, these ISIS people, people – <laughs> these ISIS prisoners who uh, were just set free, for example, and the teenagers, the kids who are growing, getting older and becoming teenagers and becoming violent and becoming addicts <laughs> – yes becoming adults, interesting um, uh, slips. Um, well, they probably <laughs> they, they later will become addicts, perhaps, but in any, addicted to ISIS in, in any case. Um, but they're becoming adults and dangerous. And um, so I, I understand that, you know, that's not on the top of your list of things to worry about. But when they come, you know, when they start um, coming to the West, and fighting for ISIS and perpetrating attacks, um, a lot of them did come or will have come from these places. 
So anyhow, getting back to poor little Yusuf. Um, he, so he sent these, these recordings to his family in uh, Australia after the ISIS prisoners, you know, broke in and there were these, this um, gunfire and, um, um, and, and uh, explosions and so on, and he got injured. He also, he sent, you know, various uh, recordings. So in another one, he said, they're not stopping shooting. Every little bit they shoot. Every little bit they're hitting missiles. I don't know what to do. Then in another recording, he described the um, bodies of the people who were killed in the attack who were lying in front of him. I mean, you know, obviously that is incredibly traumatic. Um, so the so this these recordings were sent, as I said, either phone calls or messaging app or something, and they uh, the family shared them with a fr family friend who was campaigning in Australia to bring the boy back. So he was in Australia for at least three years, and they they were trying to get the Australian authorities to pay attention and to get him out of the Middle East and Australia did squat, it seems to me, similar to what they did with the woman. I did, remember many of you may have heard the podcast that I did. It was several, I think, um, several months ago, three months ago, four months ago. You can find it um, on the podcast list um, about a woman who was pregnant, an Australian woman, and um, she, because of her papers and so on, she wasn't able to go back to Australia. Well, she she and her husband, the man who got her pregnant, uh, I don't think he was her husband at that point, but anyway, the two of them um, had various uh, documents. So they they went back to Afghanistan because that seemed like the only place that the two of them would be allowed in. And so, in other words, she, she begged the Taliban for help uh, to to take care of her while she was pregnant. Of course, I haven't really heard anything about her recently, but in any case, the reason why I'm bringing that up is because Australia and New Zealand um, did nothing to help her to get back. I mean, they were supposed to, the last word was they were supposed to eventually help her to get back, but they let her stay there for months and months pregnant, just where you want to be, um, you know, a prisoner of the, or dependent upon the Taliban. As you will hear in the next segment, that is not what you want to be. In any case, getting back to Yusuf, so um, so his family in Sydney were saying that before he was taken to the Middle East, he was a really happy child. Quote: He'd actually quite liked being the big in the big brother role, playing with younger kids around the place. He was just a normal suburban kid, and there are pictures of him, and he looks like a really sweet kid. Um, he. He's been in Syria since um, 2015, and when he was he was 11 years old when he was taken from Australia. So let me tell you about how he ended up in the Middle East. Um, so now I'm going to the news about him from July, from you know just this past week. Uh, the news. The headline is, Family Heartbroken and Angry Over Teens Reported Death in Prison in prison for ISIS Detainees in Syria. 
so now he died in the prison. Um, he was more than three years in this prison. So he was brought over when he was, okay, it, it was, he was brought over when he was 11. He's now 17. So that's six years. But so uh, presumably he spent three years in the, in the camp and three years in the prison approximately. Um, so the family was notified that he died. And uh, they're saying that he died from, quote, uncertain causes. And the family said, quote, we are devastated to learn of the passing of our beloved Yusuf Sahab. Um, this was in a statement that they made. Quote, he was a happy child who showed care and compassion to those around him. He was born in Sydney. He was only 11 when he was brought to Syria by his parents in 2015 to join the group's self-declared Islamic caliphate. And guess this, this is how this is how the whole family got to the Middle East. Uh, his, Yusuf's older brother, Mohammed, was a known ISIS recruiter in and he somehow, I don't know if he, let's see, whether he was in um, Australia at the time or he was in, or do or recruiting them from the Middle East, but he recruited at least a dozen family members into uh, ISIS's territory in Syria in those early days, in around 2015. And he recruited the boy's parents, Yusuf's parents. He come and uh, Amina Zahab and his sister Samea and his brother Khaled. I don't know what has happened to his sister and brother. Uh, they were younger, but um, you know, presumably they haven't died. Um, but he, so this, this, you know, it's all it takes is one person to be um, radicalized by ISIS. Presumably, you know, by the internet, because he, the brother was in, had been in Australia already, also, also at the time, was also in, let me clarify this. What I'm saying is, at one time, uh, the brother, Mohammed, was in Australia as well. But, um, so he was either recruited over the internet, you know, that's what it seems like happened, and he went to the Middle East, and he became an ISIS recruiter. And uh, and recruited his whole family because he thought it was so wonderful uh, to join ISIS that he brought his whole family into this mess. Now, um, in 2019, after the caliphate was defeated, uh, when he was 14, he was then separated from his mother and sister, and he was put in the prison. Yes, so that's what I was saying, about three years in the camp and three years in the prison in Syria. Now, the father died in prison, in, this, in an ISIS prison, a prison for ISIS detainees in 2020. And they think that maybe the father died of tuberculosis. Um, and there are Westerners, by the way, in these prisons, um, in these camps and in these prisons. Um, so, in 2022, as I was saying before, in January, um, the the um, there was this attack by ISIS on the prison, and they uh, to free their fellow fighters, 
and uh, they they not only and they left like some people obviously escaped, but they also left hundreds of guards and detainees dead. Some escaped, but some died in this attack by ISIS. And so um, Yusuf uh, sent this sent this these audio recordings as I was mentioning, and I have a couple of a couple of other um, recordings to tell you about. Um, in one, he said, quote, my friends got killed in front of me, a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old. I kept running, but I got injured in my head and my hand. I lost a lot of blood. I saw a lot of bodies, dead bodies, and there's a lot of, of injured people screaming from pain. Um, so it's not clear whether he ever got any treatment. Now, it's so interesting that I, I don't know if this was... Um, if this is just propaganda or whether it's uh, reported by, I don't know, by somebody who wanted us to believe this, uh, because originally the he was it was said that he in January it was said that he was injured by the gunfire and the um, and the uh, explosions around him that that's how his head was injured. Now there's a report that he said not not a quote not a, a recording. But um, I mean, maybe maybe it's somehow or other. Um, supposedly, he said that his injuries were caused by a U.S. helicopter airstrike air on the prison. So there's two different stories, and I I, I kind of uh, tend to believe that it's the first one that it was really the ISIS attack on the prison that caused the head injuries because that's you know that, that's where the um, that's where his audio recordings first came from, and when he said he was injured, he had a head injury. So I think there's some little propaganda here saying that it was from a U.S. airstrike. Um, let's see. Well, okay. Um, that, that, that'll be – ah, wait, let me see whether there's more to tell you about Yusuf. Uh, well, just that the family, of course, in uh, Australia is, you know, fu furious, um, the rest of his family who didn't go to the Middle East, and um, th they're saying, quote, Yusuf didn't need to die. Um, the previous Australian government knew about Yusuf's predicament for more than three years. We are unaware of any efforts to support, care, or inquire about him. So. Um, and so when he got to be over 12, that's when he got to, that's when he was sent to the children's section of the adult prison. Um, so, oh, another recording said, uh, quote, people are screaming next to me. People are scared. I really need help. I really want to come back home. So in one of the final messages, that Yusuf sent his family. He asked them to tell his mom that he loved and missed her. Now, is that heartbreaking or what? Okay, in the next segment, we're going to go to the women and children in Australia who are essentially being treated by the Taliban as if they are refugees or prisoners. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Terrorist Therapist Show, where we're talking today about terrorists, forgotten women and children. 
So we just looked at the women and children who are in camps, refugee camps and and prisons in the Middle East, in Syria. And uh, now we're going to Afghanistan, where although it is not, there are no walls um, around the women and children, no physical walls, there certainly are uh, metaphorical walls, walls put up by the Taliban, uh, preventing the women and children, notably female children, from um, really having a free life. It is not what they promised at their press conference, the first press conference after Biden's humiliating, embarrassing, horrendous debacle of uh, suddenly withdrawing American troops before there were any plans and before we were ready or had any assurance that the Taliban wasn't going to do what they did. I mean, really, how could you have assurance uh, you know, that, uh, because you can't, you, there's no way that you could trust the Taliban, but we did have a working plan. There was a working plan, uh, that Trump had set up with the Taliban. And if the Taliban had started to, uh, invade the country, which was against the agreement, certainly, uh, Trump would not have pulled out, <laughs> would have stopped it immediately if he saw or when he saw, I mean, if the Taliban really did do what they ultimately did. Um, and so it would have been stopped. But Biden was uh, stuck in his Delaware home, watching television, watching it all on television, and totally confused by what was happening. So um, so we have this mess now, bottom line. Um, and and the, it is especially bad. I mean, it's bad for all the people left in Afghanistan because they, there's poverty. Um, the countries who were, you know, giving aid to Afghanistan when it was, when there, when there was, um, when there were troops there trying to preserve the country and uh, keep the Taliban at bay. Uh, most of that, much of that has pulled out, much of the money has pulled out, because you, there's no way that you can trust the Taliban to use any money given to them to feed the Afghan people. They are using it to build up um, their war machine. I mean, we have left them with literally, we've left them with literal war machines, but they are using it not to feed the people, but to... Um, to make them stronger and to make terrorists stronger of all sorts. You know, it's not just uh, the Taliban who's in Afghanistan, as I'm sure you know, but there are, um, there's ISIS, there's Al Qaeda, and they are all living, they're all, uh, happily living in, uh, a place without any American or, uh, other, uh, troops, international troops, stopping them from, uh, creating plans and getting ready for war against the West, to invade the West. So, um, you know, another 9-11 is not impossible, but even if it's uh, not exactly like 9-11, but smaller attacks, I mean, the ultimate goal is to take over the West and put us into under Sharia law. And that is still the plan, whether it's Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, they're all basically in it together. And they are creating havoc for the women. Um, for example, a woman named Sarah Salim, um, who is 23 years old, she was a journalist. Um, she's no longer a, working as a journalist. Uh, she's working as a mental health counselor for um, 
a, a charity. And um, she says, she describes how her life is, uh, she looks at her life as being in two parts, before and after uh, America's pullout from Afghanistan. Because she says many people in Afghanistan are suicidal because of what has happened, and suicide is frowned upon in Islamic societies. Um, she said, before the U.S. left, quote, life was good. We participated in the government and we worked in every field. Now it is very hard to work outside without harassment. So um, the country has, you know, it's been almost a year, August 30th. It'll be a year when the U.S. finally withdrew completely from Afghanistan after two decades because, you know, it's been 20 years since 9-11. Um, at least 170 people and 13 American service members were killed by twin ISIS-K suicide bombs at the airport, as you will remember. Um, more than 100,000 Afghans were lifted out of the country, and up to 80,000 Afghan allies, the people who helped in some capacity to support the U.S. mission, are still left in Afghanistan. Uh, women make half of what men make, and um, it has the country has been plunged back into a time when women were relegated to the dark basement, and their faces are buried under uh, burqas. They have to wear hijabs and burqas. The in May the this, this the vice and I love this the vice and virtue ministry. You've heard of that, right? Uh, I think I've talked about that in a previous podcast. The Vice and Virtue Ministry, it sounds like um, Harry Potter or uh, 1984 or Animal Farm or one of those, you know, that foretold the future uh, of, of, uh, of dictators. So the Vice and Virtue Ministry of the Taliban ordered all women in the country to cover themselves from head to toe, including the female TV news anchors. They also, girls are not allowed to go to school beyond grade six. And um, they, the Taliban, you know, says they're, they're still putting out this propaganda or this, this PR that they believe in women's rights. They want girls to have education. But they say, first, they want to make sure that the female, you know, the girls are transported to the school separately from the boys and safely from the boys. This is the excuse they're using for why the girls beyond grade six can't go back to school. And also they want um, appropriate uniforms. They want all the girls to wear appropriate uniforms, which of course would include them being, being covered head to toe most likely. Um, now, another example is a woman named Asiya Jasor. She's 22. She's a human rights activist, um, and she says that her life has been turned upside down also, of course. And she said, quote, the Taliban stop you and ask you, where is your maram, your escort? And women cannot go out freely after 8 p.m. Previously, we were going to supermarkets during this time, but now the Taliban stops you and wants to know where you are going. Um, before the U.S. left, 
quote, I had a job. I was going to university for my studies and all my brothers and sisters had jobs and were studying. Now everything has stopped. So there are about 40 public universities in Afghanistan. That's pretty, I don't, that, that is surprising. I didn't realize that. Um, most have, well, I mean, that was of course during the time that the U.S. was there and, and the, uh, and the other forces, international forces, uh, where, where of course we were trying to help people become more educated. I mean, that was kind of the goal to make Afghanistan a more democratic kind of country. Um, but still, 40 is a lot. And most have reopened, but not all catered to both genders. So, um, and, and the universities that have dared to remain open to women have set up a bunch of restrictions. Quote, they changed our class times to early mornings and alternating days, and most of us could not go all the time, so most of the girls have stopped going. They enforced the black hijab on us, a black hijab in this hot weather, well, and also the burqa. I mean, you know, black, when you wear black in hot weather, black attracts sun and heat more than white or lighter colors. So basically, they're trying to kill the women if they dare to go to these universities. Um, during the day, women can still go around, but many choose not to, um, as I was saying. And if you want to go to faraway places, faraway places are considered going more than 45 miles from their home. Uh, without male supervision, they're forbidden to do that. Then another example is a woman named Shafia, a 33-year-old filmmaker. She didn't want her last name published. Um, she hides at home, and she panics when anyone knocks on the door. She said, quote, before the Taliban came to Kabul, I had a completely normal life and lived as a citizen. Now everything is broken, and there is no hope at all, no freedom. I am always afraid that I will be imprisoned under any pre pretext. Afghans now live under the law of the jungle. So, um, so it is, you know, which is better. Um, I mean, you could say that it is still better than the camps and prisons in Afghanistan, but, um, um, But obviously, this is a um, this is a very bad uh, bad situation. Um, I guess she has said. Um, let me just let me give you one more example of a woman who her take on how things have changed. Rabia Niazi, she's thirty eight. And um, she talks about how the salaries, the salary reduction has really impacted uh, families, especially women, badly. Quote, 20 years of effort were put into women, and now we suffer from psychological problems. Women have lost jobs and are sitting at home worried about their future, their children, and what they can do. Girls have been kidnapped, and now nobody knows where they are. Oh, and, and they're selling, um, because families have many children, many, most of the families have many children, 
they're selling them off, you know, getting dowries for them. So um, one woman explained uh, her eight-year-old granddaughter, eight years old, has been promised to an older man for marriage as soon as she starts to menstruate because the family, her family, is impoverished and they have another six children to feed and little in the way of flourishing crops. So families are being forced to sell off their children, their little girls, to older men to get the dowries so they can eat, so the rest of the family can eat. Very sad, very sad. You know, really not that different from what is happening um, in the Middle East in these camps and prisons. So really, uh, we can't forget about the terrorists, forgotten women and children. That is the bottom line. Thank you for listening to The Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. If you would like to find out more about terrorism from me, your terrorist therapist, visit my website, terroristtherapist.com. And if you're a parent or teacher and want to build stronger nests for your kids to become more resilient, check out my new award-winning book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. It's the first and only book about terrorism for kids. You can find it wherever books are sold or directly from the publisher at terrorismforkids.com. Terrorism, the number four, kids.com. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carol. We hope listening to the show has made you feel calmer, more resilient, and more able to reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. You can also check out past shows on Renegade Talk Archives for more insights.